Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Left of Straight Show with your host, Scott Fullerton, as we discuss everything under the rainbow sun, from LGBT issues to foodies, entertainment to books. Join us as we talk to some of the most interesting leaders and celebrity LGBT guests and allies on the internet. So grab a cocktail, it's always happy hour somewhere, and enjoy the show. Now, here's your host, Scott Fullerton. Well, howdy, 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 everybody. Guys, thanks so much for tuning in to the Left of Straight show. It is Tuesday, June 2nd, 2020. I am your host, Scott Fullerton. I really appreciate you tuning in. It's, uh, as I said last night, a very weird week to be doing an entertainment show. It's very hard to keep myself up and bubbly and trying to entertain all of you out there. But I appreciate you all so much, and I'm going to do my part the best that I can. I I had a pretty somber and serious opening yesterday. Yesterday we had a great musical Monday. I had my buddy Jay Knight, our special correspondent from Buffalo, New York, do his Indie Music Minute last night and featured a great indie artist from England. So that was very cool. And then I had from Canada, Drake Jensen, the uh, country daddy on, and we had a fantastic interview talking about what's been happening in his music scene as far as country music in Canada versus the U.S. and different things. That um, It was a good discussion. Brian Justin Crumb was supposed to be on last night, but with everything going on, he was having trouble getting on the show last night, so we've moved him back to June 15th, so he'll be on June 15th. We only had one musical guest interview last night. Tonight, I mean, the show must go on, but I'm going to start it off here in a couple seconds with a very special interview I did with Jay Mack. If you don't know Jay, he is a musician. He used to be in a boy band. Now he is a solo singer-songwriter. I talked to him a couple months back. I had posted out... um, the other day on Instagram, what can I do? Uh, how can I goes? I don't know what I should be doing. Try to reach out to people. He gave me a very thought out message that I really appreciated. And uh, so we're going to talk. Um, he is a young black man living in Venice, California. He's seen the riots go on all around him in Santa Monica and everything. And uh, he helped answer my questions 
on a lot of things and spoke about it very eloquently. So I'm going to have him on in just a couple seconds. And then we're going to try to switch into a little more entertainment news, a little information news. Coming up next day, I'm going to bring Brian Faldudo on. He is known as the Gay Life Coach. He is actually also a country music singer. He is an actor. In his past, he was featured in the hilarious movie School of Rock with Jack Black. And he's getting back into acting again. But he has a great story to tell. And I'll be talking to him first up. And then right around 715, I'm going to have Stephen S. Miller on. Stephen is uh, a good friend of the show. His uh, partner, Brian, has been giving me some great guests over the years and some great guest suggestions. Stephen has started his own show now, The Mama Rose Show, on YouTube, bringing some great interviews uh, every Wednesday. So I had a chance to talk to him the other day. Both these are pre-taped interviews I did just the other day, uh, but it's going to be a good show. We're going to try to keep it as positive as possible for you. Um, just it's, it's interesting times out there. I got to tell you, I've been to tears a couple of times, and one of them, I don't know if you saw it, you guys know how New York um, has been saluting their medical and frontline staff every night at 7 o'clock, right? So they go out there and clap, and you can hear it all over New York City. Very, very cool. Well, tonight during the protest in New York City, um, they were doing a protest march, peaceful protest march down, and they walked by a hospital, and all the hospital workers came out and were applauding the protesters. And I just lost it, dudes and dudettes. It was like really powerful imagery. So, yeah, I'm getting all sorts of feels for it. Today was Blackout Tuesday on social media. Um, I guess really only the real social media is Instagram because Twitter and Facebook didn't really pay attention to it at all. Uh, So the goal of it was to draw attention to um, things that could help for the Black Lives Matter and everything else. So it was to bring attention and leave just a blank post and there was black posts everywhere just a blacked out image nothing you could see and and uh, a great coalition of people coming together to support and a lot of them had great links of where to go to help support and you weren't supposed to promote yourself so I kind of broke the rule and, and promoted the show just because I wanted people to know about my conversation with Jay but I did put a uh, a little blank post in front of a little blackout in front of it. Um, it was it was a great sight of solidarity. So it's going to be a wild week to try to have an entertainment show, guys. But I have some great guests on that you need to hopefully uplift your spirits. That's why I went to five days a week during COVID, and why I think it's important we need to smile to have someone to talk about and learn about. So I'm happy to bring you. Some great interviews five days a week here on the Leftist Ray Show. So thanks so much for tuning in. You guys have been a huge audience since we started doing this, and I really appreciate that. So let's go ahead and get on with the show here. I'm going to play a little music, and when we come back, I'm going to do my interview with Jay Mack. So you're listening to Leftist Ray Show right here on Leftist Ray Radio Network. 
We'll play a little Matt Stern from Canada with Keeps Me Awake, and we will play my interview with Jay. Take a second and get real for a bit here in the Left of Straight show. 
with everything that's happening right now in the world, we have go from a pandemic to all of a sudden we have violence in the streets. And let's just, and we have Pride Month starting out this month. Just such a conflict of emotions. So I put out a post on social media the other day asking, what can I do? What should I say? And I had some really good responses. One of them, one of my favorite, was from a musical singer-songwriter that I had on my show back in, I believe it was January we had you on, uh, Jay Mack. He's an amazing singer and songwriter. Uh, and we, we got to talk about um, his single back then. But he messaged me with, I thought, one of the most poignant answers to what I said. And we're going to talk about that and just what's happening from his point of view. He's in Venice, California. I'm in Northeast Ohio, of course. So I was kind of far away from everything. Cleveland and Columbus is the uh, the, the biggest areas that's happening here. But, Jay Mack, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today, buddy? I'm I'm doing good. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you, man. I love sharing your music over these past couple months. We had a great interview with Jade. I want you to check out his music. Be sure to check the Leftist Radio archives and look for that back in, I think it was late January, early February. But, dude, I think you gave such an eloquent kind of response to what I was trying to get out there um, where really there is no right or wrong thing to say, right? Talk about how you're feeling in all of this, and let's start a conversation. I think for me, I, I think it's about having the conversation. I think that that's going to be the biggest way that all of us can help. And it's to make sure that this conversation doesn't die down in a month, doesn't die down in a week, doesn't die down when cities reopen. I think having the conversation, continuously having the conversation is what we need to be doing. Um, I was actually, before this, thing, this whole thing happened, I was having a conversation with a few black females that I live with. And you know, the concern is that there are so many little teachable moments where you feel the need to jump in or say something, but you also become completely overwhelmed with having to teach white America how to not say this or why this is offensive or why this is an issue. And later on this weekend, I was listening to a lot of media, and one of the things that was said was, it's not a black person's issue. This is a white person's issue. This is an issue of privilege, and people need to be taking it upon themselves to educate themselves so that they are not on the wrong side of history. And you posing the question, sort of, what do I do? How do I help? And I, I think it goes back to just talking about how accessible these narratives and stories are. And the more we talk about it, and the more we, we see these images and have an open dialogue about it, the more people are marching in the streets. That's, that's the progress. We just have to constantly see it for it to become a normalized thing. Right. And talking about ignorance and, and not knowing how to talk about it, I put in that post, and I told you out there, that I was ignorant <laughs> my own way. Um, I post, in my post, I wrote, um, it was a four-picture montage, and one of them was All Lives Matter. And all I paid attention to was the graphic, which was black, brown, white, gay symbols underneath the All Lives Matter. And I got torn up over it without realizing the history of that specific comment. And 
I, I had to learn a lesson myself, and I thought, wow, I, I thought I was a lot more progressive than I was. Talk a little bit about the history and what All Lives Matter actually means to you as, as a black man. I mean, black Lives Matter is a movement that's born from the ideal and the notion and the truth that there is an existing white privilege, and that white privilege isn't something that's just handed to people without color. It's, it's something that is just societally known. You know, I experience a fear every time I see a police officer. There's a heightened amount of anxiety and fear. Even if I've done absolutely nothing wrong, I'm just near a cop. I have to pass by a cop car. It feels like I'm in danger. That's something that's been socialized and taught to people of color is that these authority figures are not the people that you call. They're not the safe ones. So when we talk about Black Lives Matter, it's not necessarily all lives do not matter. All lives matter. We're fully aware of that. But Black Lives Matter is because there is a disproportionate amount of violence when it comes to the way African-American suspects, Latino suspects, and all other people are handled by the police. And there's a certain amount of authority that we have given police officers in our society. And when that is taken to an extreme level, we just, we've given them too much. So it's really painful to talk about Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter. Of course, All Lives Matter. But what this movement is truly about is differentiating the amount of force and societal pressure on black people. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's memes going around about it now. And like I said, it's like, okay, comparing, there's lots of comparisons, but one that kind of struck me a little bit was, um, okay, there, there's a house on fire in the neighborhood. The fire department goes out the fire. There's all, all houses are important, but the one that's on fire is the one you have to concentrate on. Right. And black Correct. lives matter is talking about, what we did, what's not being concentrated on, because that's when receiving the lion's share of the discrimination, right? Correct. Yeah, I was very ignorant, and I and I felt really bad about it, and I changed my post uh, <laughs> uh, to try to reflect that because I I, mean, I try to learn, I try. I think we all can use some types of sensitivity. I want to talk about the violence a little bit because people are condemning the looters and, and the and the protesters and that's two different things. I posted someone something earlier that those are two different words. Looter is one person. Looter is not necessarily a protester. A protester is definitely not a looter. Yes. Go there ahead. are people taking advantage of heightened actions, all of the protests, that they're using that as a way to spray graffiti and be violent and just get into police spaces. I think one of the things that I saw that was really disturbing to me this weekend, there was someone live streaming who tried to get a crowd of protesters to flip a truck and light it on fire. And the protesters just said, like, man, that's not what we're here for. He couldn't get any support. And he kept going around to people asking them to do that. And it's like there are two different motives out there. There are people out there who simply want to see this done right, who are nonviolently marching and speaking out and having their voices heard in the way that we have every right to. And then there are simply people taking advantage of that. Not every egg is going to be good in the bunch. Right. Yeah, I mean, I saw two videos that really stood out to me. One was a white guy 
all in total black, dressed head to toe. Okay, we got full on like masks that you would do for tear gas and just walking by and smashing windows one after the other, going down, boom, boom, boom. And for no apparent reason, all we do was, was, was smashing them. And it's like, that has nothing to do with anything. What are you doing there? And then I saw a video earlier today where somebody was driving by in a car, a group of three white people, and the girl in the back seat rolled down her window as they were passing a group of uh, two black women walking by and saying here and tried to pass her a brick and give her a brick. It's like, uh. what the hell? I don't understand. There, there's something more going on than meets the eye. People are saying that they're seeing bricks being delivered in different places. I don't want to go conspiracy theory because I haven't researched it enough. But there's something more going on here than meets the eye. Are you kind of getting that feeling? I'm, I'm definitely getting the sense of that. You know, people are saying that there are videos out there of officers starting to break windows and riot and doing different things like that. Like the guy in the mask that you said was walking down the street, busting out windows. People are saying that that guy might've also been an officer and that basically they're trying to make it seem like every protest is more violent than it actually is. I want you to talk about from a perspective that I could never understand growing up. What are you told compared to what I was told of things to look out for. I was taught about being careful not to go to cars with strangers, not to do this, not to do that. What special set, I mean, is there, give me the black experience if there is one. Um, we could we could probably create several memes just off this conversation. Well, you said you were told not to get into cars with strangers. I was told not to get into cars with white women. Mm. Because I grew up in the middle of nowhere in North Carolina, and quite literally, I think it was my senior year of high school, one of, one of the neighboring counties, someone had hung a noose from one of the high school's flagpoles. You know? Oh, my gosh. There were flags everywhere. I, I think I've been called the N-word to my face at least 50 times. I kind of lost count after 50, but I know it's happened 50 times from the time that I was in, like, middle school to the time that I graduated from high school. And so, like, that is just an everyday occurrence for some people, and it's even worse for others. So there, I was never instinctively taught to fear the police. But when you start to look at the narrative and the history of the civil rights movement from a historical perspective, that fear is immediately learned, that the people who are in authority that are supposed to save, help, and protect are not there to do that. And you can even see that if you're just, like, out at a barbecue and the police drive by. Everyone gets quiet. Everyone turns the music down. Everyone hyper-focuses on the cop car that's in space, and you hear people start to talk and mutter and rumble. And it's just all of these right. little things that instinctively start to teach you not to trust this particular person. And we all put on some kind of an armor. I mean, as a queer kid and everything, I every time I heard the word faggot, um, I put on a piece of armor, desensitized myself to this kind of thought, what should I do in the situation? I mean, you can only get so much armor on you until it just becomes a heavy burden. When does it, when does, when do you feel it's becoming a burden for you? 
I, I think that people of color start putting on that armor so early in life that we don't realize it. Like before we got on, um, before we started recording, we were talking about how I said that, oh, I'm doing fine. I said, like, honestly, I've been examining the way I've been answering that question all day. When people ask me, how are you? How was your weekend? Da, 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 da. And me saying, like, oh, no, I'm fine. I'm well. I'm okay. But I really start to question and ask myself, how long have I been saying that and not meaning it? You know, exactly how mm-hmm. many times do I walk out into the world with the armor on, with the face, with the mask that says, I'm okay, I'm not bothered, I'm not the angry black man that you have societally been taught to fear, you know? And I, I've right. had this conversation throughout the weekend. It's like, if I see a white lady on the other side of the street and I'm crossing the street, I put on an extra smile. I'll wave, I'll verbalize just to like make this person feel comfortable. And that type of energy becomes a part of our day-to-day narrative, so much so that it's just, it's natural, you know, and you don't realize that you're putting on the mask or the face until you step back into a situation where you're surrounded by people of color and you can have that conversation openly, freely, without coming across as the angry black woman or the angry black man. Mm. And one of the things that really stuck out, uh, what you said when you responded to um, my message out there, you said, When I see calls to action like the Black Lives Matter movement, it's touching, but it's also so everyday for people of color, and it's really hard to know which battle to pick up and fight. If I had had turned every instance of subtle ignorance and racism into a teachable moment, I'd spend every day, all day just teaching. How do you pick those battles? Unfortunately, a lot of them just are not getting fought, and I think this, that, I think that's why you see all of this protest, and it feels different. Um, I've listening to a lot of celebrity interviews, and everyone who's a little bit older than me is definitely saying, like, this feels different, especially people who grew up and have lived in L.A. What's happening right now is unprecedented, and it's because of social media. It's because that things are being videotaped, and it's undeniable what's happening. You know, there are older generations that are seeing these videos and the, the, the light coming on upstairs where it's like, maybe all these things that people have been saying throughout the years are not just over-exaggerations. So you, you really don't know when to pick those battles. You have to wait for the moment that feels like I can be effective here. I can be effective here without coming across the wrong way. I can say something without bothering someone's sensitive stomach on the topic. But the problem is, We should be having those uncomfortable conversations. But the flip side is the second you start having that uncomfortable conversation with someone who doesn't want to have it, you immediately lose all of their respect. Nothing else that comes from you can be heard. Oh, wow. Yeah, that makes sense. Wow. Let's talk about um, systemic causes. I mean, there's so much we've talked about. Uh, You mentioned prison industrial system, our justice system, closing the gap on generational poverty, teaching people how to gain wealth. Where do you think we need to start picking up the pieces here once we get through this moment of the actual protest? What do we need our legislatures, our lawmakers, our fellow humans to do to start to get on a path that's actually going to do something about this? 
First and foremost, I say guns need to be taken away from the police. I know that sounds insane to some people, but we need to remove guns from police officers. We need to remove several layers of that authority that they seem to believe that they have. You know, it, it takes a lot to, in the name of justice, say to a man who you're accusing of stealing bubble gum from a grocery store to have six police cars, eight officers, all with guns pointing on a man sitting on a bench. You know, but that's a scenario that has come up on my Twitter feed in the last week. And then it wasn't even the guy that they were arresting. But do you know what that experience is like? So it's like we have to start peeling back the authority and the autonomy that we're giving our civil servants who are supposed to protect and serve in all of these situations. So a lot has to be pulled back on their authority. That's the first step. That's the most immediate step that we can take. Certain chokeholds, certain knee holds, these things shouldn't be taught. I think it's very interesting when I see six police officers reprimanding one human being. I was like, why does it take six of you to take down one person? Should I trust your authority if you can't handle one man one-on-one? You know, these are questions right. that I ask myself. So it's like, first of all, I'll do that. Secondly, right now, our prisons are filled with men. Actually, my cousin's one of them. My cousin's supposed to be paroled in like two or three months. He went back to jail five years ago for selling marijuana. And when I tell you he had barely a gram on him, and that's the reason why he's currently in prison, I think is insane because I can walk up the street to MedMen. Well, not the MedMen that's up the street for me. It got looted. But (laughs) I can walk up the street to MedMen or any other dispensary in the city of Los Angeles and buy 10 times as much marijuana than what he had on him when he went to jail. I I think that saying that from state to state they're allowed to make these types of rules and that those people are still in prison. And then the problem is when those people come out of prison, there is nothing for them. Our job market is in tatters. Those are things that people have to fix. The majority of our country is poor or working poor, and nobody wants to get out of prison, come back to being the working poor when there's the opportunity to sell drugs or do something else, and then they end up right back in the system. There's nothing appealing in the justice system and in, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Rehabilitation. There's no reward at the end of rehabilitation. You're just coming back mm-hmm. out to nothing. So that has to right. be fixed. And there are programs out there that will help ex-felons when they come out, but there are a lot of employers who will not hire you. You definitely can't get a a decent college-level job, even if you are college-educated. Wow, right. I was just saying, like, those are small things. Those are are initial things. Let's start getting these people out. Let's start ramping up the financial support in some of those programs that help people transition from prison to an everyday life. Let's start sealing their records if they're nonviolent crimes, so that people can actively get into the workforce. You know, some of those things, and when we talk about, uh, when we talk about generational wealth and we talk about poverty, there's so many things to talk about. Talk about contraceptive. Let's start talking about how to properly rear children. Let's bring, let's make home economics more full circle and life relevant. You know, I think the only thing I learned from home ec was how to sew. And maybe bake something to the point where it doesn't burn. But, you you know, there's so many things that we can be doing in our system that are very small fixes that would start to. Very good. What is the peer pressure like in the uh, 
black community. I mean, we have people like you that go into music and uh, we have people that are just kind of left on the side and, and, and left to fend for their own. What kind of peer pressure or peer support is there among the African-American community to lift each other up or conversely to bring each other down? Unfortunately, I would say the source of both of those reside in religion, especially where I grew up. That was the staple of the community. Which church do you go to? Who's your pastor? Who's your deacons? Who's, who, who, who's on your usher board? These things were the lifeblood of the community that I grew up in. And yeah, where there's some kids who strayed and ended up in gang violence, but right now they've circled back to that. So for me, it's, it's to say that that support system needs to expand its view because let's see, like the black Methodist church where I grew up was very exclusionary. They may not have expressly said no gay folk, but they gossiped about you. They made you feel bad. You never wanted to come back. I actually have no interest in going back to the church because of my experience. I'm actually a preacher's kid. So it was even worse being there, having to silently take it and deal with it while I was still in the closet. But at the same time, right. it's like, it, there, there is, what I'm saying is it feels like there is no community support. There's no support one way or the other. It feels like a community that is truly fragmented. And the only thing that does seem to uplift and keep people almost seems a bit outdated. Wow. Okay. If you had to give advice to someone not in the African-American community on what they can do, how they should use their voice, um, should they not use their voice, shut up and just stand arm in arm, what is your best advice for those not in the African-American community that want to do something? Do anything. Do anything. It's it's. It's not about getting out. You don't have to get out and march. You don't have to put your face on camera. You don't have to do that. You don't even have to post on Instagram. But if you walk up to an employee or a coworker that is of color and say, just simply, I'm with you, or put a hand on the shoulder if you're close enough to that human being, anything that you can do is good enough. Because that little bit of encouragement, that little spark of encouragement, it it's so eye-opening because you have no idea how many of your coworkers and peers are walking around with a mask on because they don't feel comfortable being themselves in the same space as you. That little bit of support, like when Hillary lost the election, I saw so many, so many angry Caucasian faces. And for a moment, you really felt like, okay, these are the people you're pointing them out. Like, Oh, these are the people I can actually trust and talk to, you know? Because for us, it's like, oh, shit, is everyone against us? So anything, any little thing you can do is important right now. Anything you can do to empower someone. I actually walked into work this morning. All of my bosses are Caucasian men. And one of them asked me, like, hey, were you out marching this weekend? In a very, like, supportive tone. Not that I wouldn't have supportive tone, but it made me feel like I've got a free afternoon. I should go clean up. I should go do something this week. Because now I feel that my job isn't in danger, you know. Even though I didn't feel right. that walking in situation, but now I feel a little bit more empowered if I wanted to do more than just post on Instagram or tell my personal story or take an interview. Very good. Well, Jay, give us give us some final thoughts. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I really appreciate 
you kind of educating me and hopefully getting a message out to my listeners. What do you really want us to take away from all of this? What I would really like for people to take away is that the fight does not stop tomorrow. It doesn't stop when the bars and the clubs open. It doesn't stop when Pride Month is over. It doesn't stop when you stop seeing the videos on Instagram and Twitter. It's still happening. It's been happening ever since the Civil Rights Movement, and it's not going to stop until there is change. And we all have a part to play, small or large, in seeing that change come to fruition. Well said. Very well said, my friend. Well, I feel weird plugging great music while we're doing this, but we need to talk about your single because it's, uh, you kind of got in this weird space where you're promoting this brand new music and then all of a sudden everything shuts down where you can't perform it. Talk about, have you been able to use COVID quarantine to be creative? Um, we'll talk pre any of the stuff that's going on now and end this on a positive note. How is the music coming along? The music's great. I actually have a creative project coming up with Matthew James. Um, we're going to be shooting video for a few of the songs I've already released. That's sort of a live set just so people can sort of get that overall experience of what it would be like if we could be in the same space together. Um, also I've written a couple of new songs sort of developing the EP for 2021. So, you know, once everything opens back up, it'll be great to get back out there, but it hasn't slowed the train down. There you go. Well, thank you again, educating myself and my listeners. Guys, uh, words of wisdom coming here from my friend Jay Mack. Jay, let them know where they can follow you on Instagram. Give them your website so they can find your music, please. Okay, it's at J Mac Music, and that is J A Y M A Q M U S I Q, and that's at J Mac Music or J Mac Music dot com. All right, we're gonna play out with one of J Mac's single. This is no love, but this is all about the love for my listeners out there, um, for Jay for taking his time to share his story with my listeners, and we will be back. You're listening to Left of Straight Show right here in the Left of Straight Radio Network. We now interrupt your regularly scheduled entertainment for breaking news. Singer-songwriter and multi-platinum recording artist J-Mac has been charged with felony heartbreak under fuckboy code 12.3.20 and is set to appear in court today. I don't think I love you the way you love me. Why do you give your heart so easily? Don't say that you love me if you don't know what it means The love you want, you can't get from me I've been in these streets too long Don't think I can see what it is you got from me What you're offering There have been so many in the past Who tried and failed to Teach this dumb tricks, yeah Hearts in pain no lie, no lie We used to f*** raw, no glove And now you texting me back to back I ain't got no time for that Understand you want some love But you ain't getting none for Mac Focused on relationships, I'm focused on the racks You trying to get my heart, I'm trying to get a plaque I feel bad, but you gotta understand That I don't wanna be your man I don't think I love you The way you love me 
I'm dashing in the morning. Please stock in my DM. Please stop hashtagging me your MCM. If you want the pipe, then I'ma give you the pipe. But if you acting clingy, then I'ma leave you tonight. I ain't got no time to argue. I ain't got no time to fight. That's probably why you single. Show your right, uh. Give me kissing, hugging. Give me all your loving. Remember, baby, I'm not your husband. Stop trying to tell me about your type. I came to get your brain, didn't lay the pipe. It's not out of sight. Promised you a night, could probably love you, but I wouldn't treat you right. Cause your love is for anyone. Baby, that means I'm not the one. I don't think I love you. Oh, yeah, the way yeah. you Why do you give your heart so easily? Don't say that you love me if you don't know what it means. The love you want, you. I appreciate Jay so much for taking the time to come on and talk to me yesterday. And I hope you enjoyed his interview because I think he had some very uh, great words of wisdom for all of us here. But we're going to go ahead and get into a little more fun time now. We're going to talk in just a couple seconds here to Brian Faldudo, who is the gay life coach, also a great singer songwriter we're going to play two of his songs here and an actor so we'll get him going then after that we're going to bring mama rose herself stephen miller from the mama rose show is going to be stopping by and talking to us so i hope you're enjoying thanks for listening to left the straight show we're going to play a little song when we come back we having brian faldudo right here on the left of straight radio network Stay calm around me A word from you knocked me upside down Who I am is turned inside out Though I swim needs the surface Somehow you found me When the tide is strong A step made wrong could drown me But if I never leave the shore I may crumble, I may break, but I'll come back like 
from my next guest. He has worked in acting, singing, radio, and is billed as the Gay Life Coach on Instagram. You just may remember him from his work as a young actor on the Jack Black movie, The School of Rock, or you may have noticed him when he was named as one of the 20 most influential, outspoken, and optimistic individuals on the planet in Pride Life Magazine's 20th anniversary of their 20 and 20s issue. He's given back to the community through work with Broadway Sings for Pride and the Trevor Project. He's been concentrating on music for years now and working on his latest single, God Loves Me Too. I can't wait to talk to him about all that, but especially his podcast and his life coaching. So please welcome to the show for the very first time, Mr. Brian Faltudo. Brian, how you doing, buddy? Hey, I'm good. How are you? I am good. I'm glad to have you on the show. Thanks so much for coming on. How have you been keeping busy and keeping a positive attitude these last couple of months? You doing okay? I am doing okay. I don't like to brag about it too much, but I'm I'm an introverted introverted creative at heart, so I've honestly been thriving. <laughs> there you go. I like it. Yeah. Very nice. This is a time... A good time for introverts and creative types. It's really good, and there's no right or wrong way to do a pandemic, right? So <laughs> whatever works for yeah. you works. I like it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, since it's your first time to the show, Brian, why don't you give my listeners a little bit of background? Where did you grow up, and what kind of a kid were you? 
Oh, gosh, I'm from a small town called Bequanic, New Jersey. Um, no one knows it whenever I say it, but um, I always <laughs> say the town next to it, which is Wayne in New Jersey, and everyone seems to know that. So um, I'm go. from the town next next to Wayne. Um, and, yeah, I grew up, uh, I was always into acting and singing, and then obviously uh, I begged my parents enough to to get me in front of casting directors, and then eventually School of Rock <laughs> happened, and... I feel like the rest has been a bit um, out there for people to follow. But, yeah, I mean, and then I kind of, after the movie, I acted for a while in middle school. And then I went to high school where I did not focus as much on the arts. I just kind of wanted to kick it back for a little bit. And then I went to college for theater. And, yeah, I don't know how much you're looking for. I I used to have a dog. No, that's good. (laughs) I like it. I like to like to get a little background, see what your interests were. It's kind of nice that you got to pursue those interests. Yours are so varied with music and, of course, your coaching. So I kind of like to see where everything started out. Um, and talk about, I mean, you're a gay life coach. Talk about, I don't really like coming out stories as much as I like. When you, first, when you feel you first found your tribe in the LGBTQ community, are you still searching? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, I think. Um, coaching came to me because... Um, well, it's funny you say you don't like coming out stories, but I, I came out and I didn't really, I, I kind of felt like I had a second coming out, like after coming out, because I actually didn't come out till senior year of college, which is hilarious because I had been known for, I don't know, 14 years prior to that as the gay kid from School of Rock. So, um, it took me a lot to, I had a lot to navigate just kind of mentally around that title being thrust upon me at such a young age. And then, um, so I came out and, but I still wasn't, I feel like this happens to a lot of people. You come out and you're not really sure who you are still, because you've never really been that person before. You've never really tried living authentically. Um, And so I had like a bunch of years after coming out, right, which is kind of like, who am I? And uh, oftentimes very out of tune with who I truly was. And then... um, and then I, I started to eventually lock into it, honestly, through music. Music was a great outlet for me kind of finding my most authentic feeling and putting that into words. And then um, I wanted to, my journey towards finding that voice was really long. And I didn't want, I don't want it to be so long for people anymore. So my goal as a coach is to help people find their authentic voice sooner, if possible. So that's kind of like how I got into coaching. <laughs> oh, that's great. No, I like that. I like that. Um, let, let's briefly go. You talked about School of Rock for a second, so let's start just for a brief moment on that. I mean, you were obviously a kid when this happened, um, so you're acting right away and then something pretty big right away. How did that form your relationship to the field? Because I know you're coming back to it now. You have something in pre-production. Um, what's what was your initial feelings about the business and what's making you comfortable to kind of come back to it now? Yeah. Uh, I, I, when I was younger, I just wanted attention. Um, and I, 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 <laughs> I just, I demanded my parents give it to me and uh, school of rock was actually my second professional audition ever. So I kind of thought I was like God's gift to mankind when I booked it. And then, you know, the oh, industry wow. has a way of teaching you, that that's not the case. <laughs> um, <laughs> the industry's tough, you know. Uh, and I got in my head about 
what success in this industry is since I hit it kind of so right off the bat. Um, and I had to kind of do some reassessment of like why I do this. And it's no longer about attention for me. It's because I, I feel like I have things to say and stories to tell. And so I try and use my artistry a little bit more in a meaningful capacity these days. Um, and that's kind of how I reconnected with acting too. For a while, it wasn't fun for me because I was always trying to meet the standard that I had um, that I had set for myself right off the bat. Um, but then I just started taking class again and I was like, let's just have fun with it. Cause that's, that's what I was drawn to it in the first place. And, um, and yeah, now I do have fun with it and surprise, surprise, my work is better. And, um, I, I'm grateful to be kind of in that aspect of storytelling again. That's awesome. Congratulations. Now, did you ever get to go, the musical i mean the kid play in your role that luca padovan's been amazing i've seen him in a lot of different things were you able to get to broadway yes i was there um luca's great um that was a really cool moment because as i mentioned i've always been obsessed with theater so to know that like something i did which could have easily been nothing inspired an andrew lloyd weber musical was very was very very cool moment for me i bet fantastic and talk about yeah. drifting into the music a bit. Um, your your amazing singer songwriter kind of going towards the country vein from what I've listened to. Talk about what brought that out of you. Um, was the songwriting first? Was the singing kind of always there? How did you venture into that foray? Yeah, well, singing's been there as early as the acting days. I actually had to sing for my School of Rock audition, um, and I. Yeah, I remember I fell in love with singing because I used to sing really loud in church back in the day. And the choir <laughs> teacher would always be like, everyone sound like Brian, because I was just, I was literally just screaming and no one else was making any noise. And so I was like, I'm a singer, everyone follow me. Um, but no, I just got really into it. I've always loved singing. I worked in country music radio, actually, for three years out of college. That was kind of like my first job out of college. And I just kind of fell in love with that format. Um, it was about the same time that I was kind of discovering that voice that I mentioned and country music's really great about putting a voice into lyrics. You know, they're, the, the lyrics are very right. storytelling and very me- meaningful. So I just kind of found my niche in that genre. Um, and yeah, we call it, we call it gay country or queer country or whatever you want to call it, but it's this new movement that I like to be, that I like to call myself a part of and, um, I think that that genre could use a little more LGBTQ representation. So um, it's an exciting place to be, to be singing these songs. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, it's starting to come around. I mean, we have uh, Brandon Stansel, of course, and we have mm-hmm. uh, Cameron Hawthorne and uh, my buddy Hayden um, is coming into it soon. So it's starting to get the recognition that it deserves um, talk about your songwriting process. Are you a melody first person? Are you a lyrics first person? Um, what kind of drives your writing for yourself? Oh, I'm all lyrics. It always starts with a lyric for me. And then I find the melody that just feels most appropriate to whatever I had to say. And sometimes if I don't feel like I have enough to say, then, then I won't, I won't continue creating um like a lot of my a lot of the length of my song or the direction of my song is determined on what i have to say so it's less on Mm. um 
the feeling of the melody. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's <laughs> it's a, I guess an interesting approach, but I really uh, it works for me. As far as my process, I tend to get away to write. That's kind of why I was just in in Nashville because I tend to go away for like little writing spurts because that's just kind of when I I find that traveling kind of opens up the mind and opens new neural pathways right. and stuff. And whenever I'm whenever I'm traveling. I just have easier access to feeling and to um, to things I want to say, essentially. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of like my I, – I mean, I don't always travel to write, but that's kind of like my preferred method. <laughs> gotcha. No, that's terrific. And like you said, you're into the storytelling, and country is storytelling, and so it's kind of natural for you that the lyrics would come first to create the story you want to talk about. Do you play a musical instrument, or do you collaborate with others – to get that sound or how does that part work yeah i play piano and guitar primarily to write though i have this wonderful group of musicians here in new york city who uh who work with me to perform the songs whenever we when whenever we book a gig or we we go on the road or we do a show so they um they kind of help me then tell the story in a in a more beautiful capacity <laughs> that's great now your your up single is called God Loves Me Too. Do you have a fairly religious background, or is this a, is this a literal song? Or tell me about where this is coming from. Yeah, no, I'm so excited about it. I've never been more excited about a project. Um, it's coming out next month for Pride season. Uh, we recorded it. It's going to be released via music video. Actually, I do have a strong religious background. I, as I mentioned, I grew up singing in church and. Um, I think when a lot of people come out, they go through like this trivial relationship with the church, which I certainly went through. Um, I don't know if trivial is the right word, troublesome uh, relationship with the church. Uh, but yeah, so I went through that and as I found that voice that I mentioned, um, I also kind of found this truth that I think that we don't need to do anything to earn love and acceptance. We just need to exist. And this, this song is about that and that uh, I think a lot of queer youth are told by religion that they need to change in order to be accepted. And so this song is is saying that that's not the case. So it's a very literal song uh, to answer your question. And it's a, a very, you know, I, it's a bold statement, but I believe it to be true. And I want more people to hear it because I didn't know one day that uh, an affirming church would be an option for me and I found that and so if anyone out there wants that I want them to know that it's an option for them as well that's a great piece of advice and so true I mean it, and it's nice there are a lot more uh, opening and affirming churches these days and uh, you hear so many horror stories about different religions doing different things but I think there are options out there now and unless we talk about them people may not be aware of it so Good on you, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Congratulations on the song. Very, very Thanks. cool. Yeah, I certainly, I certainly wasn't aware of it for a long time. So that's kind of where this is all coming from. And yeah, thank you so much. I'm so excited. Can't wait for it to come out. Do you have any influences on your music besides working at the radio station? Are there any certain artists that you you follow or emulate or would like to maybe collaborate with sometime in the future? Oh gosh, so many. Um, I, I always, I don't know, I always refer to Casey Musgraves. So if you listen to my tracks next to hers, they're not exactly the same, but she definitely, I love the way she tells story in song. 
and the subtleties that she that she uh, decorates her music with that are actually so interesting are so cool to me um, because at the end of the day she's just writing simple catchy story songs right but there's also so much going on beneath the surface musically and it's just I, I really admire the, what she's able to do essentially um, so I'd love to work with her one day that would be the biggest dream yeah <laughs> there you go put it out there put it out into the universe right? I like it all right, well, let's get into life coaching. I want to talk about this. You have an amazing podcast we'll get to in a minute. Let's talk about getting into this field. What is a life coach? I mean, I know there's a definition, but what does a life coach mean to you as far as how you practice uh, doing it? And tell me what got you interested in this path. Yeah, so the uh... – as far as what I do as a coach, my slogan is kind of love yourself, share your story. Um, I think that uh, oftentimes the obstruction between a good relationship with ourselves is the story that we're telling ourselves about ourselves. And if we can question those mm-hmm. narratives, we can have a better relationship with who we are. And then when we have a better relationship with who we are, we can put a more unfiltered version of who we are out into the world and share that rather than this story that we're telling ourselves and then telling the world, which isn't really true to perhaps the story we'd like to be authoring from a authentic perspective. So my goal is to kind of just unlock the obstructions that the obstructions and the narratives that don't serve the truth of who people are essentially. Um, And I find it to be, both a complex and simple process at the same time, because, you know, when you put it down onto paper, it really is just looking into thoughts and uh, sentences and narratives and questioning them and replacing them with things that better serve you. Um, but, you know, those, those obstacles can be really hard to, to get out and to, um, to get out of the way, essentially. Um, so, right. yeah, and that's, I don't know if I answered your question, but that's kind of like my process for coaching. (laughs) No, I think you did. I like that. And I really like that there is a gay coaches alliance that you are part of, and there's actually international standards for doing what you do. Talk about these two organizations and how they kind of help you in your practice. Yeah. So I'm, I'm certified through the international coach federation, which just means that I abide by their standards of coaching Um, And then they're just, I actually didn't know about this when I first became a coach. I was so delighted to discover it, but there's a gay coaches alliance, which is just all, it's it's literally what it says. It's an alliance of gay men who are coaches, Um, which sounds very niche, but you'd be surprised how many members there are. Um, I think I've discovered that gay men make good coaches. And I think the reason for that is we've had to, undergo a huge uh, kind of like rediscovery of who we are on our own often. And we've had to ask ourselves hard questions in the middle of troubling times. And we've had to navigate uncharted territory. Um, And we come out of that stronger and we come out of that with a good um, assessment of what it takes to change, I think, or what it takes to actually not change, do the opposite of change and to actually honor the truth, as I mentioned. So um, I think that uh, gay men have just like this natural inclination to be 
um, good coaches. Not to not to mention we're just sensitive beings. Um, I guess more so than our hetero counterparts at times. And um, yeah, I just I I'm discovering through this organization that. I feel I type into this field well, and I think a lot of the men who are part of this organization do amazing work. Nice. And I think we are more in tune with both our masculine and feminine sides as gay men, which I'm sure helps a lot um, to kind of work both of those psyches. And I think there are a lot of amazing people in this field from our LGBT community. I know I'm going to have Derek Jameson on in a couple of weeks. He's very strong in this field, and there's quite a few out there. Talk about your initial meeting with a new client. What are you trying to get out of them? What do you need to know from them so you can set a path to make them on their best true life journey? Yeah, well, uh, usually I'm trying to gear whether I think I can be of assistance to them or whether they should go to someone else. You know, sometimes therapy might be a better approach or there might be a better coach for them just depending on like what they're looking to get out of the coaching. Um, as I mentioned, a lot of my work is based on your relationship with yourself. So I try and, you know, find that niche because I know that that's my strong point. Um, and then uh, I'm also looking for their level of commitment because I can't actually want their success more than they do. Uh, otherwise it just doesn't work. So I'm also just trying to use the phone call to gear whether they are actually up for this or not, because, Otherwise, it's just going to be a back and forth that doesn't actually result in change, you know. So there has to be a certain level of right. understanding that it's them who's getting in their own way and a commitment to changing that. Very good. Okay, I like that. And talk a little bit about how these sessions go. Are there um, lessons to learn? Is there homework to do? Are these video chats? Are they telephone chats? Are they all the above? Tell me about your processes for working with people. Yeah, no, uh, we we do phone calls. Uh, the reason I do phone calls, actually, which is very different than a lot of the coaches that I'm aware of, I don't. I like to do phone calls because I don't want anyone. Basically, what I'm doing is I'm trying to help people improve their relationship with themselves and to find confidence and to overcome shame and to um, live really authentically. And so I don't want them saying something and then looking at the screen for my facial reaction. So I. I want them to just like say something and have that be that vulnerable moment where they say something and live with the feeling that comes after that with or without my approval. Um, so I actually love to remove my face. I think that it provides for more, um, more vulnerable chat essentially. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, we coach, I start with three months as a minimum commitment because I think that that's kind of just the time it takes to uncover some of these things. And, uh, it, there's no really set process. It really all depends on the client. Um, a lot of times I'm asked to give advice, which I always think is a, a funny thing because it's hard to give advice without knowing someone. A lot of what coaching is is meeting someone where they're at and walking with them on their journey towards change um, because mm-hmm. everyone's different. And so I don't ever want to give like a one Band-Aid fixes all kind of solution because I don't really believe in that. Um, right. I have different approaches with all of my clients and it's more just about empathy and like understanding who, who they are and what's going to work for them, uh, which a lot of times they already know the answer to. So it's really just a lot of listening and reflecting and, um, you know, we can't see our shit when we're in our own shit. So it's just helpful to have that outside perspective. <laughs> you know? There you go. I like that very, and I really do like 
the phone approach. I mean, it's very much kind of like the voice where you're not looking at a person and judging anything on physical traits. It's all about the talent. And for you, it's all about what they're saying and picking up on the keywords and their feelings about themselves. Right. I love that part of it. That's amazing. Great. I'm glad. Yeah. I, I'm glad you love it. I sometimes, I don't know of many other coaches who do just phone. I know there's a lot of video involved, so I'm always like, should I be doing video? But I, I really prefer it this way. I think that it, it does provide everything you just said. There's there's less chance of judgment, you know? Right. Very cool. Well, let's talk about your podcast. Um, when did you start this up? Tell me about some of your um, favorite experiences on it. Yeah, so it's kind of new. It just came out like uh, a month ago. Uh, we have our third episode coming out tomorrow. Uh, which is with Ross Murray of the GLAD Media Institute, and he has such beautiful insight to share, which I'm so excited um, to share with everyone. But, yeah, basically, kind of like what I mentioned when I discovered the Gay Coaches Alliance, my whole journey as a coach has been discovering my inner voice and um, helping other people discover their inner voice too. But a lot of this journey has been me finding out that there's so many people who are doing what I'm doing because they've had perhaps similar traumatic experiences that they've overcome and, or they've, or they're also just like obsessed with the inner work like I am. And, and I have like this weird, strange curiosity to really unlock what it, what it takes to improve your relationship with yourself or your future or work towards your goals. Like that's, that's the kind of stuff that gets me excited, the inner work stuff. And I'm discovering that that's the case for a lot of people. And so I wanted to be able to not only do my inner work and help people with their inner work, but I wanted to hear from, I want to be more collaborative with other people who are doing the same thing. So the goal of the podcast is to to talk to other people who are both working on their storytelling and helping other people tell their stories so that we can just get all the perspectives. Because as I mentioned, I don't think that there's a, a one band-aid fits all kind of thing. And so the more information we have and the more awareness we have about what's out there, the better we can be, I feel. And give me some nuts and bolts on it. Um, how often do you have an episode? Do you, is it all interview portion? Do you do some phone call in to actually talk to people or what's your style? Yeah. So it comes out every other Friday. Um, it's just a really casual conversation, kind of like the one you and I are having right now. Um, it's there's not many tricks and uh, tricks there to it. Um, we do have a video element portion that gets put onto my Instagram TV off of the Gay Life Coach account on my Instagram, and that whole Instagram is also just great to follow if people just want like a daily dose of something you can do to feel good that day, or positivity, or just a daily dose of love. Um, I'm really proud of the content on that page, um, and I think that it does a good job at uh, counteracting perhaps some of the inauthentic things you might hear on Instagram. It's just a place where people can really find perhaps some truth that um, might better serve them in their day than, you know, some of the comparing that happens on social media or some of the negativity that floods in during pandemic times, for example. Um, it's a It's a place of uh, it's it's a place that's just meant to serve you in your day. So I'm I'm pretty happy with the content there in that respect. Well, I'm glad you're putting it out there because there's two things that have been concerning me during this time. 
One is the element of kind of being almost trapped at home and maybe not being entirely out to your family or your roommate or anything like that. Do you have any off-the-cuff advice possibly for how to kind of get yourself through those nerves while while you're dealing with the, the isolation part? I mean, luckily we're opening up now and can start to venture out. But uh, what do you talk? What would you say to the people that have been kind of in this situation where they've been at home by themselves, where people don't really understand where they're at? Where do you suggest their next step is to kind of get back into society again? Yeah, um, that's, I'm wondering that for myself as well. Honestly, uh, I've been so content in my introverted state that, um, and I've been reading some things about as people start to venture out, uh, social anxiety might increase because of you know, what we've gotten used to. But I think at the same time, uh, I speak to a lot of queer youth regularly because of what I do. Um, and I am aware mm. that there's a lot going on at home for youth right now, especially queer youth who might not be in an accepting environment. Um, and that's really tough. Again, the advice thing is hard because I don't know everyone's situation. But in general, um, I think seen, heard, and validated is, can can literally save a life. So I think that if someone right. feels like they're at home and they have no options or or that this sucks, you know, anything they're going through, my my word to them is like, yeah, it does suck. Um, I'm I'm sorry that you feel like you have no options. That's a very valid feeling right now because um, there is. I think that there's no right or wrong way to react to everything that's going on. And right. if we get in our heads about what is right and what's wrong that's when we're going to drive ourselves into, into that place that's really hard to get out of. Um, so I think that everyone should just kind of give themselves permission to feel however they're feeling about this and then reach out from there, reach out from that, that place where you are in the feeling. Um, and then I'm sure I guarantee you that there's someone out there who wants to meet you where you're at in that place. So don't be afraid to reach out and, and virtual connection has proven to be an amazing thing during these times. So um, don't underestimate what it can do for you, essentially. Yeah, that was my next question, too, because on the, the second half of what I was saying is we had this shelter in place, but now we have a lot of our uh, nationwide pride festivals are not happening now. And pride was as much about physical contact, touching, seeing, hugging, um, fellow people of our LGBTQ community, and this is going online quite a bit now. We're going to be doing lots of virtual prides. I still think it's real important to kind of tune into these to get that sense of community, right? And uh, any, any recommendations on that whatsoever? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I just wrote a piece on this, actually. It's I My challenge to the queer community, and they can choose to take it or not, but um, as I mentioned, when you first come out, there's when I first came out, I kind of wish that the world would stop for a moment so I could have a chance to be like, okay, what's going on? Who am I? I have a lot of <laughs> questions, but you don't have time to do that. I came out and then I graduated college. I moved into my own apartment. I, I got a full-time job. I, I didn't have time to just sit around and be like, who am I? And I think that there's a certain healing aspect to coming out that needs to happen. If you think about it, you, for me, I lived for 14 years in shame over who I was. And that doesn't just go away overnight. So there's a certain right. healing aspect that I don't think gets highlighted when we are posting beautiful photos of ourselves on Instagram or 
busy social lives or just like keeping busy so that we don't have to think about the part that needs to be healed. I don't think that it's easy, but for the first pride season ever, we're kind of being forced indoors with just ourselves. And my challenge is to the queer community is to pay attention to what comes up during this time. And if it feels uncomfortable, don't ignore it. Just sit with it for a little bit and see, see if we can focus on healing this pride season while we're forced to essentially. And then next year we can go out and be even louder and prouder than we've ever been before. You know, um, that's kind of like my challenge just because a lot of my most beautiful healing moments in my journey have come from those nights where I'm completely alone with just my thoughts and my feelings or, um, or from even from tragic times, you know, from pain that I thought was going to be the end of me, but actually turned into being one of my larger growing points in my life. So, and this Mm, is tragedy that we're in right now, the pandemic. So I think that we, we have a lot of, we actually have a lot working for us as far as like healing. Um, And it's easy to not see that. So I'm just trying to point out like, maybe we can all sit at home and like improve our relationship with ourselves, you know? (laughs) There you go. I like it. I like it a lot. And, and pride too has always been to me. And I say it every year on my program that it's about our history too, reconnecting with our history. So I hope people will take the time to kind of look at our, our queer history. I mean, we lost a great icon with Larry Kramer this week and it's just an important time to really learn who we are to where we want to grow forward. So well said, I like that. I like that challenge. I accept your challenge. Very good, Brian. Thank you for that. No, of course. And, yeah, everyone should also connect and celebrate, for sure, yeah. Exactly. Well, Brian, I appreciate you sharing your story. I can't wait for uh, more to come. We need to tune into this podcast every other week. Follow you on Instagram. I'm excited to see more music and theater or production in your future. Anything else that I didn't go over you want to – bring out to the listeners today no i just want to wish everyone a happy pride and thank you so much for having me amazing well please let all my listeners know where they can follow you like i do please give your website and your social media for everyone yeah if everyone could all go hang over head over to the gay life coach on instagram i think that they'll enjoy it it's honestly uh, a very positive uh, affirming place and then my personal instagram is brian saldudo which if you want some occasional selfies of me wearing a mask, that's where you'll get those. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Brian Falduto, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Left of Straight show. Thanks so much for coming on, my friend. Yeah, thank you again. All right, well, stay on the line for me, guys. We're going to play out to another one of Brian's songs here, and I'll be back on the other side. I appreciate you listening, and you're listening to Left of Straight Radio right here on the Left of Straight Radio Network. Never met anyone quite like you It'll be pouring rain But your sun shines through You always put everyone else first You see their best when they're at their worst But lately what you've been going through Shouldn't be happening to someone As beautiful as you I'm here to tell you that it's not fair 
please know how much I care. You were always there with your burned up hair, telling me I'm good and that you knew I could. You had everything I wanted when I did you flaunt it around to everyone in town. You loved when I sang and when I did him bring a smile to your face. But now that's been replaced with a tired look. Yeah, your face been shook and you're scared and unprepared. And no, I can't. Stephen Miller is 
done everything from acting to directing to stage managing to cabaret, all the things that I absolutely love. I had a chance to talk with him just the other day about uh, all of that, plus his brand new YouTube show called The Mama Rose Show. And loving that. You have to check that out. There'll be a brand new episode tomorrow and every Wednesday. So let's go ahead and jump into that. We'll play a little music. We'll talk to uh, Mama Rose herself, Stephen. And I'll be back to wrap the show up in just a little bit. You're listening to Left of Straight Show right here on the Left of Straight Radio Network. Good buddy Levi Christ with Tell Me Twice, 
Levi was our special guest on Musical Monday last week, so be sure to check that out if you missed that interview. Guys, I'm so excited. My next guest is making his first appearance here in the Left and Straight show. He's an actor, stage manager, director, and blogger who's worked with such productions as Anything Goes, West Side Story, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. He studied the Metropolitan Opera, the Neighborhood Playhouse, and the Turtle Bay Music Company. And he's recently let his inner Broadway diva flag fly as the creator of the fantastic new web series, The Mama Rose Show, now playing at a YouTube and Internet stream near you. I can't wait to share his story and journey with you, so please welcome to the show, Mr. Stephen Miller. Stephen, how you doing, buddy? Hi, darling. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I am so excited to have Mama Rose herself in the house. Thank you for coming on. Well, thank you, darling. How are you doing? You've been a busy little beaver. Mama Rose is taping episodes left, right, and center. How are you handling Corona Quarantine personally? You doing good? Oh, doing as good as one could, I suppose. Just trying to stay busy and entertain the masses along with it and, you know, trying new things, experiences, life. (laughs) There you go. Well, you are bringing it, my friend. Let's start with a little bit of background. Talk to me about where you grew up and what kind of a kid were you? Oh, I was a brat, you know, the usual. Uh, (laughs) But I was... I was born in New Hampshire originally in Bridgewater uh, on Newfound Lake, but I was also raised in New York City, uh, which I think is really where my diva came out uh, and all of my studying here. Uh, But, you know, lots of studying. As as you said, I was uh, studying at the Metropolitan Opera as a child. I was on the main stage as a child. Uh, studied with Sanford Meisner at the Neighborhood Playhouse before he retired and unfortunately passed on but what a, a genius he was and experiences that have you know, been had that is amazing and so you always wanted to be an entertainer was that your goal i actually started training when i was three years old and it was because of my great aunt alice keen who was uh, a concert pianist and uh, taught at the brooklyn school of music and uh, traveled the world, knew the best, and she knew talent when she saw it and said to my parents, he must do this, get him into classes, get him motivated into this. And 20 years later, I was still doing it, and now (laughs) I've been in the industry for over 30 years. That is fantastic and amazing. Where did you uh, first really find your tribe, do you think, in in the entertainment venue? Was it uh, doing that early studying, or where do you feel that you really came into your own? Uh, It was probably uh, in my late teens that I really fell in love with musical theater and whatnot, but I originally, like my very first, uh, love came when I saw The Phantom of the Opera with the original cast uh, in 1988. Uh, I was four and a half years old and I was just so taken by the production and that was my first love for musical theater and it just continued on from there and you know just I, I always wanted to be on the stage and I wanted to be the center of attention and you know all eyes focused on me with the spotlight and you know, throughout the years, it became the spotlight on me, and I've loved it ever since. As it should be, my dear, as it should be for sure. 
Well, let's kind of go through your career step by step. I want to start with, uh, like I said, you've done everything from stage managing to directing to being on stage yourself. Let's start with the stage managing part. What really um, does a stage manager do, and what does it take to be a good one? Stage managing can be very difficult uh, because there is so much that a stage manager needs to do on the stage, off the stage, in the dressing room, and so far beyond. Because it is you as a stage manager making sure that everything is in place for a show, being backstage, props, costumes, et cetera, et cetera, but also making sure that your cast is on time. And it even goes into the rehearsal process because it is, you keeping track of the rehearsal so that the director is able to do their job and the producers are paying for professionalism and that there's no games being played and no drama that needs to be happening off the stage. So it is the stage manager that creates that magic behind the scenes and making sure that everybody in front of house knows what's going on and just keeping the drama on the stage and not off the stage. (laughs) I love that. That's fantastic. We'll talk about some of these projects. Of course, I am a musical theater fiend. Um, Tell me what are some of your most memorable. I saw you worked on Green Room, Streetwalker, Birthday Boy. What's more memorable to you about any of the musicals you directed? For directing, uh, I've loved directing you know it's it's just as difficult uh but my most favorite show that i ever directed was the cover of life written by rt robinson who actually happens to be my uncle uh who passed away in 1995 of AIDS. you know it's a very sad story mm. and it was so, you know so early uh but it took place uh it was based around his family uh, and mine and my mother, Kate Miller, actually plays, uh, you know, was the, the title character. It was based off of her. So to be able to revive it 20 years after his passing was just very meaningful to me uh, because it was like reliving the experiences of seeing his show in 1994 at the American Place Theater, uh, which it was originally picked up by the Schuberts uh, uh, to be performed off-Broadway, and that was his life dream, was to have his show on stage in New York City before he died, and he did, and that was one of the biggest inspirations for me to go into directing, because he just had such power as a writer, and then the directors, you know, of the show, and, uh, you know, having that ability to bring it back in his memory, and it ran for a month, and I I directed it, and it it was thanks to him. That's an amazing story. I love that he was able to see that work come to fruition and that you got to helm it. I love that. That's fantastic. Well, talk about directing. I mean, what's the difference really between directing Broadway as opposed to television and film? Because I know it's really different from genre to genre here. What do you find about um, directing stage that has its own maybe unique challenges or maybe is a little bit easier than television or movie? I would find it easier to direct stage uh, because it's on such a smaller scale to a certain degree because there's not as many people working on it. You don't have the cameras. You don't have the, uh, you know, everybody else, the grips, the, you know, boom operators. You know, it's just you and the cast. And, you know, of course, you've got your producers and you've got your stage managers and whatnot. So it's on a much smaller scale, you know, like I said, to a certain degree, 
But uh, either way, directing is, you know, a difficult position to be in. And you've got to be very, very strong because you are directing your entire cast, but you're also trying to keep track of everybody else and the communication lines open. So, you know, it's not an easy job. It's a very rewarding job, uh, but it's, it's a difficult job, you know, whether it be film or television or stage. Definitely. No, agreed. Definitely. That's for sure. We'll talk about, I want to talk about your other life too. I mean, you were um, in special education as a paraeducator back in Bridgewater and also the chair of the drama program for your newfound Memorial middle school. Talk about bringing your talents to directing and stage working with students. How was that? How was it rewarding and how was it challenging? Well, that's a very interesting story because I wanted to take a break from the theater world you know, just to kind of, after 20 years of, you know, working for that, I just needed a moment to take a break. I never wanted to leave it. I just wanted to step away for a moment. Uh, so right. I, I moved back to New Hampshire and started, um, you know, seeking out positions. And someone offered me an after-school program uh, job. And I ended up being hired for special education, which honestly is one of the most rewarding experiences of my life because uh, many of my family members have, you know, uh, special needs. And, uh, you know, I've learned all about it. I've, you know, understood it. Uh, But it was very rewarding. And what I ended up doing, uh, I was offered to take over the drama department at the middle school And what I did very differently from what they did, I included everybody. If you were special needs or not, you know, mainstream special needs, you know, there's so many opportunities in theater for children, for adults, uh, because you can work on costumes, you can be on the stage, you can be off the stage, it doesn't matter, you're just part of something. And one of my most favorite stories that I love to tell is there was a young man who came into sixth grade. He was terrified. He'd never been accepted and came up to me one day and said, what is the drama department? And I explained, you know, there's many aspects to it. And he said, I can't go on the stage. I want to be part of something, but I cannot go in front of an audience. I'm too scared. So he came on. He built sets. Uh, the following year, he was in the ensemble, and the following year after that, he was the star of the show, and he went on to high school. The very first show they put on, he was the star, and it just it wow. fills my heart to be to be the cause of that. You know, that, that's one of the greatest achievements in my life, was to be able to do that for someone. I bet. Oh, that's such a great story. I love hearing that. I love when you get to see your results happen before your eyes, where you take someone and mold someone like that and then to see them take it and blossom on their own. That's amazing. It's just support. You just, everybody needs some form of support in our lives. And for this little boy, he needed someone to look at him and know that he had possibilities, opportunities ahead of him. And he, he, I don't think that he's, in any major, you know, productions, but the fact that he did that and wasn't afraid sure. to do it, you know, it's just, it's, it warms my heart to, to remember that story. Exactly. Well said. Thank you for sharing that. 
Well, let's go to you in front of the audience here a bit. Let's talk about, uh, I want to hear about this opera training and you work with Paper Mill in New Hampshire. Um, Talk about your early experiences acting. How was it to you? What do you feel like when you're on stage? And give me those early experiences. Well, working at the Metropolitan Opera was quite a wonderful experience. I worked with the late Elena Doré, who was the chorus teacher for over 50 years and worked with some of the most famous opera singers in the world. And, you know, because of her, I had the opportunity to work with quite a few famous opera singers. Uh, But my early life was very difficult because uh, there was a lot of time for training rehearsals and of course schoolwork uh but it it was so rewarding and i'm so happy now you know all these years later to have had that opportunity but when i was in it it was difficult it was 12 to 15 hour days six to seven days a week you know it was very very tiring uh i still pretty much the same schedule you know sleep wise (laughs) um but, you know, I've had that experience, and I can look back and be like, you know, I've done it. I can do this. You know, I could do anything. Uh, but I did work at uh, the Metropolitan Opera and, like I said, Sanford Meisner at the Neighborhood Playhouse and, of course, uh, the Paper Mill Playhouse in uh, New Hampshire was just a fabulous experience because it was in a very old uh, paper mill, the original building they just put up a stage and put in an audience and, you know, it was all original and backstage was, you know, kind of broken down, but it was just such a fun experience and they had Broadway stars and, you know, I was able to star in several of their productions and just wonderful experiences. Fantastic. And talk about your cabaret act. I am a sucker for cabaret. Whenever I go to New York, I like, I go broke every night trying to find a cabaret act going that night. Tell me about your act and uh, what draws you to cabaret. What do you like about it? The intimacy or? I do love the intimacy of cabaret. And it was actually, I hadn't been on the stage in over 20 years, uh, not for lack of trying, just there were so many other things going on in my life. And I uh, was introduced to somebody who was running a cabaret. It was the Hidden Cabaret in the Secret Room. Highly recommend it once we are able to open again. Uh, And I was asked to be the headliner for a presentation that they were doing back in February for Valentine's Day. And I sang two numbers, and we had uh, some up-and-coming Broadway actors and, you know, uh, a fabulous MC, uh, Craig Horsley, who is just a darling. And, you know, we just we threw the show together, and we had fun with it, and I'm currently working on a couple of new shows uh, for once we're able to get out of this uh, quarantine for Cabaret. One is going to be based on my life, and one is actually going to be, yeah, based on my great aunt Alice Keene and her, you know, trials and tribulations and experiences of, uh, you know, she worked throughout the year and took the summers off and went to Paris and the Moulin Rouge and, meeting all these famous wow. act, you know, people and uh, artists and having them come and stay with her here in New York. And it's just it's a fun, you know, just some songs, you know, of the eras and, you know, all truthful stories. <laughs> Congratulations. Those are going to be amazing sounding. I love that. 
I love a great cabaret show. What's up? I mean, I've listened to some of your songs. You do standards in Broadway, of course. And I mean, what's your favorite style of singing? What kind of music draws you in? Well, of course, Broadway and West End. You know, the musical theater has always been my life. Uh, but I, I love the standards. There's something to be told in a good standard song. You know, Frank Sinatra and, uh, you know, those fabulous singers of yesteryear. And, uh, you know, I... I'm trying to take a stab at jazz and whatnot because, you know, my life has always been musical theater and there is some jazz in there, uh, but there's, I just have such a love for jazz that it's all about feelings. Uh, And it's the same thing in musical theater because you have to feel the music, you have to feel the lyrics and take the lyrics and understand everything that's going on. So it's the same thing in jazz. And I just, I I love a feel-good song. You know, we all have so many depressing things in our lives that we want to go somewhere and listen to something that's fun and fabulous, you know, and not boring and dull and, you know, depressing. However, a good depressing song every now and then is a good thing. (laughs) There you go. Amen to that. I like it. I like it a lot. Well, let's bring Mama Rose forth. This is an amazing, the Mama Rose show premiered just a little over a month ago. Talk about the impetus and the inspiration to bring Mama Rose to life. Well, that's a very fun story again. I've got many fun stories in me. Uh, Many years ago, you know, stage managing, I was always the stage mom. You know, if someone was upset, I was there as a shoulder or to sit down and talk. And, you know, if you needed me, I was there. You know, I was I'm stage mom. So I ended up gaining the nickname Mama and then Mama Rose. And it has just continued through the years. And, you know, my cast loves to, love to call me Mama Rose. You know, Mama Rose, I need you. So when I, along with Brian, my lovely boyfriend, uh, were putting together this concept for the show, we wanted to do something that was uplifting, positive, you know, with fabulous guests, you know, There's so many other shows out there, but not every one of them is all based on positivity. And my role as Mama Rose is positivity. So we, you know, gathered a bunch of people that we knew and didn't know and we've been introduced to uh, and had them on as, you know, for interviews. And, uh, you know, it's just fun. You know, we're telling stories. We're introducing people to stories that they don't know about. You know, we just had Del Shores and Emerson Collins on the show with Sorted Lives, uh, which was fabulous. And, you know, just those are the fun stories that we want to tell. It's positive. It's fun. Uh, And we are airing music videos and so many other things. Well, and I love that you decided to do on YouTube. I've always said that I have the face for radio. I hate getting myself taped. But you have fabulous sets. I mean, I love the color of Mama Rose. Talk about this that decision to go on camera. That's what all the cool kids are doing these days. I guess I should start eventually. But what made you decide to go that route? Oh, darling, I I always thought that I had a face for radio. But then I, you know, I I've always loved being on the stage and again in in the spotlight. But you know, it's so different for me being on camera because I've always been on the stage. And yes, there may be a camera or two in there, but you never see the camera. You know, you just see the spotlight. 
So doing this was very different for me. You know, I've done television, I've done film, but you know, it's I've always been behind, you know, uh, an extra, or you know, you're you're off in the background <laughs> somewhere. So being the star of this show is is difficult, fabulous, you know, uh, but you know, there's the set is just so much fun because I I am honestly obsessed with sequins uh so i always have my sequin jackets on and my hats you know my sun hats as i call it uh it i i just i have so much fun with that hat and then the jewelry and you know that's just my personality i'm loud proud out <laughs> i'm not hiding anymore uh so i throw on my sequins and you know the set has been fun to construct uh, thanks to Brian, who's just so inspirational. That's amazing. And talk about, um, you've had quite a few guests on now. Talk about anything surprising come out of an interview for you, or what have you found maybe the most difficult interview for you? Do you get starstruck? Uh, I I do, but, you know, in, in professionalism, you know, you just don't, you know, show it. Um, right. You know, I've met many famous people in my time, but, you know, it was, I think, not not that difficult, but it was just so exciting, like I was uh, mentioning before, having Del Shores and Emerson Collins on, these two huge names in the industry, and they're just so lovely. They're so down to earth, but right. they're such big stars, you know, <laughs> and talking to them and you know, you just try to keep moving forward, you know, with the conversation, <laughs> which was so easy with them. You know, they're just such lovely people. I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't say there's any difficulty in that. Uh, but, you know, it, it, some days, you know, you just don't have the energy <laughs> to get on that screen right. or on the radio. Um, so I think that would be where the difficulty is. But as a performer, you know, you just shut off life and <laughs> get up there and do it, you know, because you do, you're doing it for the love of it. And, you know, exactly. not every day is going to be the same as yesterday. There you go. That is a true statement. What about some dream guests? Is there anyone you reached out to or you haven't reached out to that yet that you'd love to see come uh, speak with Mama Rose? Oh, there are many people that I'd love to be able to reach out to, you know, Bette Midler and Goldie Hawn and uh, Diane Keaton would be a dream. Uh, I met her many years ago. Uh, but, you know, those I would love to get those names on the show. But, you know, we baby steps, baby steps. Uh, but we have reached <laughs> out to some incredible people. One of my dream guests would actually be Eileen Kristen. Uh, you know, known for her work on Ryan's Hope and uh, One Life to Live, and she just had a new show uh, that aired recently. You know, there's, you know, there are dream guests that I want to get on the show, uh, but you know, we. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. And do you have a kind of tone to your show? Is there? Any, are you just looking to um, really celebrate your guests? Are you trying? to keep in any certain vein or where do you, how would you describe your show to others? Well, I try to focus on the guest, you know, yes, I call myself the star of the show, but it's all about the guest and what they're trying to tell. They have a story that they want to tell and get out there. And I want to be able to do that for them. So having them on, my focus is the guest, 
you know, I, I love to tell their story. You know, maybe they have a, a new EP dropping or a television show that they're going to be on or they're producing a new show. So, I mean, it's really just about the guests. And then we, of course, right. have some questions for them. And we just try to do it in a positive way. None of the questions are going to be depressing. You know, we don't talk about the depressing things. We talk about the positives. And also, you know, tell our audience what it is that's going on in the world that doesn't have to deal with some of the depressing things that we're dealing with. You know, there's there so many positive go. things out there. <laughs> exactly. No, I like that. Very, very nice. And where can everybody find Mama Rose at? Well, it is on YouTube, as you have so generally, generously mentioned, but you can also find it at Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, S as in Sam, Miller.com. And, of course, it is on our uh, social media platforms. On Instagram, we have at Mama Rose Show and also at Stephen Miller Actor. And on Facebook, at Stephen Miller Actor. And on Twitter, Stephen S. Miller 4. I love that. Thanks for You even got two questions ahead of me there. And when do you have a <laughs> regular drop day that you do the release these shows, or does it vary from week to week? When do you when do we usually expect new episodes? Normally it airs on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern time, uh, but it depends on the projects that we're working on. We have recently just completed a bunch of interviews with the Brooklyn Film Festival, which is now streaming live, having the opportunity to interview uh, some of the filmmakers and the stars of that show, so we had to get those out earlier than usual, so they were kind of back-to-back-to-back. Uh, but usually it is Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time, and we try to keep it consistent there. <laughs> well, Stephen Miller, it's been delightful having you and our special guest, Mama Rose, on the show today. Thanks so much for coming on the Left and Straight Show. Well, thank you for having us. All right, guys, there will be a link to Mama Rose's show in the description, so be sure to get to the Blog Talk Radio description for that. And also we'll have it in our other descriptions where we send out all the podcasts. Mama Rose, you have to come back. I can't wait to speak to you again. And good luck with all of this great stuff happening for you. Oh, don't you worry. Mama Rose will be back, and she's on camera uh, all the time. So (laughs) look out for us. We will definitely be on the lookout for you, Mama Rose. I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show Please stay on the line for me. Guys, I'll be back after we play a song from Mama's Cabaret Act. This is Any Dream Will Do from Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. You'll see the Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight Radio Network. I close my eyes, drew back the curtain to see for certain what I thought I knew far, far away. Someone 
has got me really kind of down uh, with everything happening in our country. So I have decided to stop the shows for the rest of the week. I'm going to reschedule my guests that I had scheduled. We're going to take it again next week, just because I think there are some stronger voices out there than mine that need to be heard. So please follow me on social media. The Left of Straight will be back Monday through Friday, starting next week, 6 o'clock Pacific, 9 o'clock Eastern time. I really... Appreciate you guys being part of the show, and we'll talk to you real soon, okay? Um, take care of each other out there. Bye-bye. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.